Welcome to the Open Doors Initiative podcast. My name is Jan McDonough. We work with companies, NGOs and government to create employability for marginalised groups. These include people with disabilities, migrants and disadvantaged youth. You can visit us at opendoorsinitiative.ie. This series looks at mental health and employment and is produced in conjunction with the Community Foundation and Bank of Ireland. In this episode, Jerry Farrell, a psychotherapist, talks about his many years experience in mental health and some of the learnings he has from it that can help us all in our day-to-day lives. Well, Jerry Farrell is my name and I'm 44 years working in the mental health sector. I started off in psychiatric nursing. I then studied psychology and then studied psychotherapy. And um, in the latter part of my career, I would have lectured in psychiatry and counselling in Trinity College for for a while as a guest lecturer there on the diploma in counselling. But I also lectured at NUA Minutes in addictions and in the degree in social studies in IT Sligo. I'd have had experience in eating disorders, acute psychiatry, forensic psychiatry. Um, so a lot of a lot of different areas. And um, of course, I've done a lot of one to one private practice work with, with people. So I've spent about thousands and thousands of hours with people processing their problems. I suppose because I've lectured and because I've worked um, and I've seen people who were not only having mental health difficulties of one kind or another, but then perhaps haven't had their time wasted with a sort of a guruish kind of theory. I tend to be quite clinical. If we can't prove it scientifically, I don't tend to run with it. Jerry talked to me about two different models that people can use for maintaining their resilience. The first is called the life skills model, and he talks about it now. If you think of four kind of circles, there's your body, there's what we do, there's the way we think, and there's our feelings. Once you move one of those wheels, you affect all the others. So say, for example, if I'm lying in front of the television, I say, oh, I'm depressed, fed up. It's amazing if you just move the body, what happens? you decide to go for a walk or you so then you begin to move the thinking and you move, move the feeling you know the most difficult one of those to move on its own and sometimes people not familiar with mental health don't understand this is that can be the feelings one if people are depressed uh, you know I, I accept that that's what they feel but sometimes they say what's the least thing you can do so you know what what could you do could you get up and even though it may be a huge effort, make a cup of tea or, you know, we now know, for example, that the body is hugely important. When I would have worked way back 40 years ago, we had a big emphasis on changing your thinking. We now know that the energy from a thought is quite weak, but the energy from your body is quite strong. And so therefore, people need to, uh, and, and, and we only actually know real detail about this in the last 10 years. The very front part of your body, from your neck down to your waistline, focusing on that, focusing on your breathing, and even just putting your hands on that part of your body, because the largest nerve in your body, the vagus nerve, is all contained there, you actually send very soothing signals up to your brain. You know, when we're depressed or we're anxious, we're stuck in 
what do we call our reptilian brain, the part of the brain that's quite primitive. And our brain has a negative bias. Nine people told you in a day you were brilliant, and one person told you you were useless. What are you going to be thinking about going to bed at night? We know, Because of that, we can't change our thinking until we change that part, until we get the brain out of that negative place. Our brains are divided into three parts. There's the negative, real old reptilian brain. It was designed to help us cope with primitive things. If you're walking through a forest, even a twig would break. You'd either take flight or you'd fight or you'd freeze. Now, the difficulty with anxiety and depression and uh, those kind of things today is that even though we're not in a huge danger, say, say anxiety, you know, you're not in huge danger if you fail an exam or, you know, you don't pass an interview, but your brain doesn't know that. So you tend to freeze. And actually the, the problem is it becomes a self-fulfilling thing. Then you get anxious about the event. And then the part, the other two parts of your brain, your thinking brain and your empathic brain, are put into freeze mode. So you can't think. If, if, if you just take it as very simply, sometimes somebody asks you an awkward question in an interview, you freeze. That means the primitive part of your brain has kicked in and you can't actually think of a proper answer. You come out of the interview and somebody says to you, what did they ask you? And she has the answer quite clear. What we now know is that getting up and moving the body and holding that part, that your chest or your tummy area, you send very soothing messages up to the amygdala in the brain. You come out of that part of your primitive part of your brain, and then you can begin to think. There's 10 thinking skills. The two most important ones, one is always saying to yourself, I have a choice. And the second one is having good coping self-talk. Just to mention, there's a lot of research done by Judith Beck, that would be the daughter of Aaron Beck, who founded Cognitive Behavior Therapy. She did some very important research, and particularly females, males as well, but particularly females, can up to 80% of what they say to themselves about themselves is negative. Now, the difficulty with that is if you keep talking to yourself that way, that goes down into the unconscious mind. It keeps you in the primitive brain. So the, when it comes to thinking skills, you've got to say to yourself, like, what are my choices right now? What is, what is the one thing I could do right now? You speak to yourself in a positive way. I, I, can, I can recall from my own work, I, I worked in very stressful environments. One of the most stressful environments I ever worked in was eating disorders. Extremely stressful. Very young people and, you know, dying, going to die if, in the unit I worked in if, if, if they didn't take care. Staff could te tended to be stressed. There'd be a lot of stress. And I can remember I would sometimes think, God, am I able for this at all? Or should I be doing this? Or you know, the, the imposter syndrome, I'm not good enough to do this. And I often remember I would just go into the toilet for a second and I'd put my hand on my chest and on my tummy. I'd calm myself down and I'd look into the mirror and say, Jerry, is there no end to your talent? Okay. Now, in that moment, I lightened everything. I'd calm the body down. So that meant I came out of the primitive part of my brain and then I could listen to myself saying something positive to myself.
saying positive things to yourself while you're still stuck in your primitive brain is useless. And, you know, it's like being in the middle of a panic attack and somebody saying, yeah, calm down. It, it doesn't work. It takes work with the body to get yourself out of the primitive brain. You know, once we move the body, you know, somebody says something to you that insults you or hurts you, just begin to notice after, if you've listened to this podcast, just notice what happens in that front part of your body and just notice what happens when you just move your body ever so slightly, relax it a bit or whatever, and then say something positive to yourself. But don't try to do that talking to yourself without first focusing on the body. You move the body, change your thinking, do something like move, move, you know, move and do some one positive thing and then watch your feelings change. We then talked about the second PERMA model. This looks at positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning and accomplishment and was developed by Dr. Martin Sigelman. PERMA just simply says in terms of positive emotions, what is there in this moment that I can cherish? What is there about the past that I could be glad about? There's a lot in the past we can have regrets about. And actually, the older you get, the more you have to regret, obviously, because you've lived longer. But then what you say is, what am I glad about in the past? What do I cherish in the present? What am I glad about in the past? And what do I hope for the future? We need to have hope for the future. I'd easily say, in, in this stage, I'm in my 60s now, and this is a long career and all this stuff, and I've always set goals. But if I had a particular goal, let's say, for example, I remember having a goal once to be a manager as a psychiatric nurse at one time. I never realized that goal because I got, even though I worked hard to achieve it, but something else took my interest along the way. But I'm glad that I did have that at a goal at the time because having it at the time is what motivated me to do my job as a psychiatric nurse well if that makes sense. So we can set goals. We don't necessarily have to achieve them or we can change them. But it is important that we set them because that's what gives meaning to our life. You know, you can have a daily goal. You, you can have a weekly goal. You can have a lifetime goal. But we, one of the greatest things that gives meaning to our life is that we're trying to accomplish something greater than ourselves. Uh, so positive emotions engagement engage with people you can engage with a documentary you can engage with an item on the news you know i remember once working with an uh, with um, a men's group and uh, the, the men's group was in a very rural it was a small rural town and it serviced uh, people who were very isolated or a lot of them living on their own and these men used to come in to a center and they'd sit in a room and they didn't do an awful lot, but they would sit and slag one another off and annoy one another. <laughs> but the mere fact that they were engaging with each other meant that it was much, from a mental health point of view, it was much better for them. One of course, real popular things now is mindfulness. But a lot of people confuse mindfulness with mindfulness meditation. In my experience, a lot of people who suffer from depression and anxiety find mindfulness meditation quite challenging. You don't need to do mindfulness meditation to become mindful. Right now, I am being negative, so I'm going to try and change that to a positive emotion. Right now, 
uh, I'm just living inside my own head overthinking something. So do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a phone call and engage with somebody. So now that's mindfulness. You're now doing the thing mindfully. So positive emotions, engagements, relationships, uh, relating to each other. I mean, the whole theory behind counselling is that two people sit in a room. One is hopefully properly educated in psychology and probably a little less messed up than the person that they're talking to. Okay, but they're probably both messed up because we're, you know, at this stage of my life working in mental health, I just have, it's not a theory, it's a belief that um, we're all messed up in some sort of way or another. And actually, the, 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 the I do clinical supervision with counsellors and, and I actually find that the people who acknowledge their own mental health problems and ignore knowledge don't struggle are the best people working with people who are struggling, you know. And and the reason why counseling works is that these two people relate honestly to each other. So any kind of relationship, and you know, you mightn't have good relationships with family, and that is a lot more common than people think. Most people project images of having great relationships in their family, but as a mental health professional, can I tell you? Most people find families hard going. That can be one of the myths that that uh, perpetuates mental health problems and people with mental health problems is that this notion that they should have great relationships with their brothers, their sisters, their son, grown up sons or daughters or whatever, or their mother or father. Most people find those relationships actually quite tough going. And they're always of an ambivalent kind. They can be good to a point, but they're usually there's something about them that's a bit challenging. So sometimes a, a friend, but any kind of relationship or even somebody you have a hobby with or whatever, but do kind of mindfully relate in a day to somebody. Uh, meaning I've already touched on, you know, setting goals is what gives your life meaning. And any goal you set, it doesn't have to be really huge, huge goal. The goal I have set myself now, my, my day was busy today looking after grandchildren. That's that's what I did all day. And, and basically, they're very small grandchildren, age three, and the other two are one years old. So, you you know, just the mere fact that I came within at 20 to 9 this morning, came out at um, 20 to 7 this evening, and that they're alive and well, that's an accomplishment. <laughs> okay. But... I have set myself the goal of baking a cake later on, okay? I'm going to bake a soda bread later on. Now, there was a time in my life when I was in my 20s, I, I, I think that having, having a goal of baking a cake was nothing. But that I'll be really delighted when I'm taking that out of the oven. So don't believe that you have to have huge goals or uh, to achieve them. But the people who are mindfully aware of the small ordinary goals that are achieving are the people who tend to achieve the larger goals and some days you know we, we can set ourselves higher goals than that but that's what gives our life meaning and then become very mindfully aware of your accomplishments you know depending on what your mood is on any given day when you get up speaking as a man if i can shave there are certain days if you're if you're really down just the mere fact that I had shaved myself before nine o'clock in the morning was good enough. Uh, that was a, I, because, I don't mean it's good enough, but what I mean is that that's an accomplishment. You start to say, I look at that, I've done that. 
okay and and you take it from there and you build you, in other words you become mindfully all of these things what they begin to do is move you out of the natural tendency of the brain to be negative i'm i'm trying to be positive in my emotions even though i can slip into the negative i'm trying to engage with somebody or something you know doing a crossword is an engagement in something i'm relating to somebody i have some relationship uh, doesn't have to be deep and meaningful. I have a goal, a couple of things I'm going to achieve today that gives my life meaning. And I'm become, going to become very aware of everything I'm accomplishing. Those are the things that build resilience. That, that's what resilience is. It's, it's a flexibility in what we do, in what we think, how we manage our feelings uh, when we're faced with a difficulty or through a long period of pressure so whether it's COVID, whether it's uh, finding a job whatever it is that may be challenging your resilience if you apply those two or a combination of those models my hunch is you're not going to do go too far wrong depression anxiety or even elation uh, sometimes those things are the natural tendency of the brain. The brain has that negative bias, okay? Our resilience, and this is why mindfulness is, is part. So in other words, don't despair if you find yourself going into despair, okay? Uh, apart from my professional career, I do a lot of drama. and I've written a couple of plays and that sort of time. And sometimes I find myself, just for no reason, my mood going down. And what I always say to myself, my self-coping talk, the self the second thinking skill is there must be some reason why I need to come down early. I need to go down here because usually coming out of that place, I will find something creative. And I, some, sometimes we need to do that. You must remember that depression is only something we've talked about since the industrial revolution before that when, when life was always rural. People's moods went with the seasons. So we went down. And then we came back up again. You know, we're meant to operate like the seasons. That in other words, we're not meant to have the same mood all the time. Okay. If, if, if you find yourself going down, just say to yourself, right, there may be some reason for this. There may be something creative that's going to come out of this as I'm coming up out of this. Thing. Then what you want to be very careful about, though, that that doesn't flip, that you go into a fantastic place where, you, you know, that's, that's what we call elation. Okay. So, um, so, th so therefore, take mental health or being negative to begin with as the norm. Uh, I sometimes give out to mental health professionals who, who try to pre present the norm as being stable and in good form and resilient all the time. That is not the norm. The norm, our brains are designed to be negative. And we then use something like the life skills model or the perma model to keep our mental health going to, to just be aware but the difficulty particularly with depression say for example the difficulty is if you don't mindfully apply one of these models or, or, or a variation of it the difficulty is that it becomes a spiral because when you get into a depression you won't move the body you won't engage you won't relate to anybody you won't become aware of your accomplishments. You won't set goals. So it becomes a whole self-perpetuating 
kind of quagmire that you, that you catch yourself in. I asked Jerry about what are some of the practical things people can do to maintain their mental health and resilience during this time. Put this into, say, the life skills model. What, what is it I can do? Now, sometimes, we'll say if you're dealing with a bereavement, sometimes the only thing you can do is accept, okay? But moving the body, we, we do know that, like, uh, moving the body is, is huge. Now, there's some research that so, shows, for example, that a brisk walk for 15 minutes in a day, uh, three, three times a week, is as good as taking Prozac, okay? Now, I want to be very clear, anybody that's on Prozac or any other any other medication, nothing I say, I want them to, you know, stop medication or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not advocating that at all. But we do know that uh, actually uh, going for a brisk walk, that the uh, neurotransmitters you will transmit, you, you transmit a lot more serotonin, which is a very important for our mood, if you go for a brisk walk. Um, and and countless times working with clients over the years, I've seen that where, you know, I used to often say to clients, and this is from a thing called reality therapy, where they'd say, I'm depressed. And I'd say, instead of using the adjective, I'm depressed, try using, if you think about what you're doing, use a verb and say, am I depressing? Because if you're slouched in front of the television, if you're taking a substance like alcohol, you're actually actively depressing yourself. That's depressing. Okay. And say to yourself, no, so what can I do, which is the opposite of that? What can I do that's that's enhancing, going to enhance my mood? And certainly getting up and going for a walk um, is, is uh, we, we do know. We also know, thanks to the research by a brilliant man, and I think he's a couple of lectures on YouTube, if anybody wants to follow them up, called Stephen Purges. And he he is uh, he, he's the guy that's responsible a lot for what we know about the body and that kind of thing, but he has a thing called the polyvagal theory. And a very interesting thing he discovered, really, really interesting, which is very enlightening for us counselors, is that if you have a compassionate conversation with somebody, you actually change the neural activity in your brain. If you think about workplaces, very often you have poisonous playmate activity in workplaces. People latch on to the negative. Uh, even this is the reason why you talk about families sometimes, why you want to be careful about families, because sometimes when two family members get together, they have a big poisonous playmate or bitching conversation about another member of the family. When you're actually at that, you're putting yourself into your primitive brain and it's an addictive experience. You get a bit of a high from it, but then the consequences of it is a huge low. So be very careful of those conversations. And what Stephen Purges has actually discovered is that if you have a compassionate conversation, so say for example, if, I, if I'm in such a low mood on a particular day, I find it very, very hard to say something compassionate and positive to myself. I should engage with somebody else and say something positive to them. And by saying something positive to them, compassionate and positive to them, eventually that changes my neural activity as well. And that may, may make me so, you know, 
in the COVID thing and all the rest of it, there's a thing in cognitive behavioral therapy called catastrophizing and awfulizing. We love those conversations because they're addictive. They actually stimulate the exact same part of the brain as where we have sexual activity. So people love to have those conversations because they're kind of exhilarating or a bit of a high for a while, but be very careful of them because they give you a down. So getting up, moving the body, putting the hands on the chest or on the tummy, closing the eyes while you're doing that, going for a brisk walk. If you do those things and have a compassionate conversation with somebody, you will actually find your mood and resilience change. And imagine having that as a way of life. Imagine that becomes your way of life, and positive emotions, engaging with something, having a relation to somebody, setting goals so you have meaning in your life and constantly being aware of your accomplishments. Imagine when that becomes your way of life, then things begin to happen. To find out more about the work of the Open Doors Initiative, go to our website, opendoorsinitiative.ie or check us out on Twitter at Open Doors to Work and on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.